Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Beer and Money. I am Ryan Burkwell. And I'm Alex Collins. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about three money mistakes you haven't heard about. Yeah. It, it, intriguing topic. When you brought it up, I, I was curious as to which direction you were going to take it. But before we get to that topic, let's jump in and talk about what we're drinking today, Ryan. So today... We are going to drink the Tolt IPA from the Valley House, a local brewery here in uh, Duval. It is a West Coast IPA, 6.7% alcohol, 60 IBUs, and uh, it's it uses a lot of, of uh, local uh, local ingredients from the water to the malt to the uh, the hops. Yeah, this beer is, you know, it's, it's in Duval, which is where I live. So uh, I'm a bit biased when it comes to this, <laughs> this brewery. So all cards being on the table, just heads up for everyone there. Um, the brewer there is an awesome guy. Uh, this beer is my go-to beer when I go in there. Um, I wouldn't say it's his staple. Um, he actually doesn't have a staple, which is interesting. Uh, owning a brewery doesn't believe in having staples beers. So he's got a bunch of different... Uh, different types that he has, but this one here, it's that, that classic IPA. It's, it's not hazy. It's not ultra bitter that, that some IPAs can have. It's not going to smack you in the face. No. And it, it's got a very clean, um, a cleaner finish, clean, crisp. It's just a good beer. Yeah. So it, it's solid. If you're in Duval, uh, definitely stop by the brewery. It's got an awesome atmosphere and, uh, and try this one out as well as try out some others. So we'll probably talk about here uh, on these, on one of these episodes here shortly. So, so let's, let's jump into the topic here. So, you know, this one occurred to me the other day where, I mean, how many different articles do you see on CNBC news and, and all these different media outlets said like top mistakes that people make financially. And they're always a, they're always the top mistakes, right? Like make sure you have an emergency fund, make sure you're saving, make sure you put money in your 401k, right? It's it's the standard ones almost every single time. And so we started thinking about, okay, what don't we hear about? What is it that Alex and I talk about with our clients that our clients go, yeah, I, I never looked at finances from that perspective. And then that is a mistake that, that I've actually done because I didn't look at it all the way through. So let's jump right in here, Alex. So the first, the first money mistake that we see, and it's more of this mistake isn't a state like uh, that no one should put money in this type of vehicle. It's more of they don't look at it from the with the end in mind, meaning they put all their eggs in one basket. And this first one is they've got too much money in a tax deferred vehicle. You and I have spent a great deal of time talking about balance. This is a balance issue and it, it there's nothing wrong with taking a tax deduction and putting money into 401ks iras any of the traditional retirement plans it can be the right place for you to put money however to your point we don't want to have all of our eggs in that same basket we want to have some amount of diversification we want to have some amount of flexibility with where our dollars reside 
because that's going to lead us towards more choices and options. Yeah, the, the traditional mistake here that most people hear is, well, they're not putting they're not putting their money in a 401k, right? But that mistake doesn't actually go into is, okay, should you do Roth? Should you do the traditional side? And most people blanketly, because it's the, it's, I mean, it's actually what you sign up for unless like it's, it's the automatic option, which is the tax deferred side, the traditional side. And with that automatic um, sign up for that, you, you lose a bit of control in terms of your taxation later on in, in life as you start to pull money out because you're taxed in every dollar that you pull out. When one of the things that I will commonly hear is, have you maxed out your 401k? Yeah, right. And, and it's that may not be the right place to put it after, depending upon what the rest of your circumstances are. You know, maybe we've got bad debt. Maybe we've got other things that are going to pop up sooner that allow us to do things differently if all of our wealth isn't residing in our 401k. And I, I brought up diversification earlier. And I'm not talking about diversification in terms of like the, the assets that you have. I'm talking about it from a taxation standpoint. What's the, are, are we tax diversified, not just investment diversified? So do we have assets that we can tap into tax-free? Do we have assets that we can get access to before age 59 and a half? And understanding some of the limitations that are put on 401ks in order to get that tax deduction up front or tax deferred on the back end is an important thing to understand and is oftentimes overlooked when doing planning. Yeah, uh, I definitely don't want to beat the dead horse on this one because we have spoken at length on this particular topic. Um, so the the point of this is, is looking at from a holistic standpoint, do you want all of your money in one style or one egg basket, if you will, that tax deferred style? Right. So there have been multiple clients that you and I have sat down with where like, they're like, Hey, look at what I've done. It's awesome and amazing. And you and I take a look at it and go, wow, you are well ahead of the average person and you're creating a tax bomb. Yep. And like, just to see the look of shock and somewhat horror that comes across their face. Once they actually understand what we're talking about with the tax bomb it, and then trying to figure out like, okay, how do we unwind this and what does it look like? And um, how, how do we get ourselves to a balanced approach? It is way easier to take a balanced approach from day one. Yeah. And that tax bomb that, that Alex is referencing, you know, if taxes go up and from a, from an income perspective in retirement, you're still in that higher tax bracket that, or even the same tax bracket, right that become that could become a tax bomb, meaning you pay more in taxes later on. So that that's the aspect or the the concept that we're trying to make sure that is being um, being understood in that and when we're talking with our clients. Well and some of the unintended consequences of what what it can do to other programs that are out there, whether that is uh, not getting a reduction in your property taxes, not having more of your other sources of income become taxable because of uh, the, the way in which you're set up, having more of your uh, healthcare costs increase because of some of the ways in which you're set up in retirement. And 
also having less choice and flexibility when you get to retirement. And if you're going to have that, you know, one year where you take a significant chunk of change to go do that big trip, whether it's to visit the homeland or to, to have this just amazing trip that you've always wanted to, to have. And now you finally have the time to be able to do it because you're retired. You, you may wind up paying a lot more in taxes that one particular year, and it can become very inefficient. 100%. So that's mistake number one. That's not often spoken about. Mistake number two is overpaying on good debt. And it's most people don't understand the concept behind good debt and bad debt. So Ryan, why don't you take a, a take a minute and, and explain what is the difference between good debt and bad debt? Yeah, so when we're talking about good debt versus bad debt, in its simplest analogy that I explain it, like high interest credit cards, right? That tends to be bad debt because let's just say your interest rate is 17%. Okay. If you were to overpay on that, that credit card, if you chose not to, where else could you put your money that would get you 17%? Consistently guaranteed. Right. That becomes very, very difficult. Right. If not impossible. So that is bad debt. Whereas good debt is, so take that same analogy, where else would you put your money in? Could you match or beat that interest rate? Well, right now it could be mortgages, right? It's sub three, <laughs> which is yeah. it's crazy to think about. There are spots where you can put your money that could at least get that amount and probably more. So that would be labeled as good debt. Uh, another, another way of thinking about it is bad debt is typically consumer debt. You're buying stuff that's going to be consumed yeah. in some manner or another. Good debt is you're buying an asset or you're improving an asset. And so for the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part, we would think of good debt as things like student loans, business debt, where you're specifically buying, uh, you're, you're making a capital contribution to your business that is going to increase revenue or preserve revenue or increase the assets of the business. Now, again, don't just go buy assets for the sake of buying assets, have a plan involved with it. Another example would be buying real estate. Like you're buying an asset and you're just using leverage. The one, another judge of good debt versus bad debt and I'll give two examples here. One is the interest rate. Typically good debt has a low interest rate. The hurdle rate or the threshold that we have to get in terms of rate of return to overcome that the cost of the interest is low. And then the second attribute that it oftentimes has is tax deductibility. If it's tax deductible, that's going to reduce down that cost and it's going to make it more favorable and more attractive to us. So that's what we mean by good debt versus bad debt. And the reason I put this on here is I don't know how many times we're sitting down with people and they're, they're proud of overpaying on their debt. And, and that's, it's a good thing. I'm not saying the paying off your debt is bad. So please don't take that as, as I'm demeaning them. But it's this, this blanket statement that's out there right now that 
all debt is bad. And so everyone's trying to pay off their debt rapidly. And this more so goes into the, the mortgage arena where they're like, oh yeah, I pay an extra monthly mortgage payment to bring down that, that debt so I can pay off my house in 15 years rather than 30 years. And so when I bring up, okay, could you put your money elsewhere and beat a two and a half or 3% interest rate? That's when they kind of go, huh? Right. Well, and then <laughs> yeah, we start- like, aha moment, because again, this blanket statement around paying debt off debt is being a good thing. They don't actually take a step back and say, okay, is this debt really what I want paid off? Well, what are the alternatives, right? They don't look at the alternative, right? Because if, they read that debt is bad. Right. If we put the dollars into another vehicle, might we be able to accumulate enough to pay off that mortgage in 13 years or 14 years? We may choose not to, but we have the ability to. The other question then becomes, okay, if something occurs, could be something good, could be something bad, who knows, right? If we have tied up all of our money in our house, do we have the ability to go get access to those dollars and take advantage of whatever is good or minimize whatever is bad? Maybe. We're not going to be able to do it without changing the terms of the loan, for sure. There may be some costs. There may It may not be optimal to do that. Whereas if we have dollars setting aside in a liquid account, can we liquidate those and do something different with them? Absolutely. Again, we depending upon what it's in, invested in or how it's structured, there might be some pros or cons to it, but we have more choice and more flexibility that way. And, and having choice and flexibility, that, that's always a good thing from our standpoint. Yeah, which you just started talking about really mistake number three, where it's about not having liquid money and it's our standpoint is really flexibility. Well, and so many people get wrapped up in this, this concept of, of rate of return. Something we were just talking about a minute ago where we want to seek the highest rate of return. Yes, but not at the sacrifice of flexibility and liquidity. And so like, and heck, I was guilty of this myself and advising others on this earlier in my career I was an efficiency junkie and I always wanted to try and get the best rate of return, thinking that that was where, you know, like how to go ahead and get ahead. But then there were a couple of times where myself, others wound up in a short-term issue where we didn't have enough access to liquidity and either an opportunity went by the wayside or we wound up having to juggle some things and make life very uncomfortable for a period of time because we lacked liquidity. And oftentimes it wasn't anything that my client or myself did. It was an external force. Uh, I think back to the, the credit crisis that happened in uh, 07, 08 and, and the resulting downturn in the economy that, that occurred as a result of that, that caused a credit crunch and a lack of liquidity for a lot of people. And I know a lot of people um, that wound up losing a bunch because they didn't have enough liquidity. Yeah, now, let me just define 
the length of liquidity that we're talking about here. Most people have heard like having an emergency fund. And most of the time I hear people talking about having three months of expenses sitting in an emergency fund. And that's great. We're not saying that you shouldn't have that. We're also saying you should have another nine months. So we're talking about 12 full months of, of whatever your gross income is liquid. Meaning if you're making $250,000 a year, you should have access to $250,000 from a liquid standpoint. And we can go ahead and discuss and get into the details of like, okay, what does that mean? And like, what falls into that category? How do we define it? Like, do I need all 250 to be sitting in a bank account? No, no. But let's, you know, dig into, okay, what does that actually mean? You know, liquid to us is having, being able to have access to cash in a short period of time, call it three to five business days. Well, so Ryan, our, our 401k through work allows us during a hardship to take a withdrawal. Does that count as liquid assets? Well, it depends. Is that money for retirement? What that mo- What is that money for? What's going on in the market? There's a bunch of, of, of pieces to your question. Right. The, the way in which I would answer that question is no, because of some of the things that you just brought up. Yes, we might be able to get access to it, but we can't get access to it without taxation, penalties, the possibility of pulling it out of uh, a volatile market at the wrong time. And one of the biggest issues that we face when doing planning is trying to take a systematic income from a variable structure. That inherently creates significant amounts of fluctuation. And therefore, we can't be as efficient with our withdrawals from that because we don't know whether we're going to get the good fluctuations or the bad fluctuations. But even if you're getting the good fluctuations, that just means that the, the money, the growth that you would have had is no longer going to happen. Right. <laughs> you still have a, miss, <laughs> a missed opportunity there, right? So uh, that's the piece. And we're not saying, as Alex said, we're not saying to put 12 months sitting in your checking account earning nothing, zero point nothing. There are other structures and other vehicles that you can go ahead and get access to that still have low volatility, that have uh, low taxation structures to be able to get access to, that have uh, high stability and that have some amount of growth without and still maintaining liquidity and access and things of that nature. Yep. So that's mistake number three, right? These are three mistakes that people make all the time. Now, maybe it's not a mistake to you personally. We're not trying to say that everyone's made this mistake or it is a mistake for everyone. These are just pieces that are not spoken about that should be spoken about. Well, and just because a mistake doesn't have a mistake doesn't have bad consequences doesn't mean that it wasn't a mistake. It 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 it's still improper planning. It may have just worked out for you and your situation. You know, for example, if you go out and buy a lotto ticket and that's your your method of of retirement and you hit the lotto, that doesn't make your strategy good. It just means that you were lucky and it worked out. 
I'm laughing at that, right? That's a fair, fair statement, right? It's what I always make the joke that we essentially eliminate hope. <laughs> Mainly, so many in, in, a, in, in a good way. In a good way. So many people are relying upon, they hope that the market works out for them rather than actually having control and you actually being able to control what it is you want to do with your money and when it is you want to stop having to work. I would argue that we're giving people hope by taking away speculation and conjecture as a strategy. Love it. So that takes us to the question of the day, Alex. Our question today is, what piece of blanket advice around finances have you received and how has that affected your financial decisions? So there are plenty of media heads out there. There are plenty of articles that are all stating just kind of blanket advice. And we're not saying that all of it's bad or good for that matter. Right. It's just blanket advice that's not specific to your personal situation. So head over to beardmoney.net Talk to us. What type of advice have you taken that you're like, oh, after hearing this episode, that changes how I could have looked at that decision? And it's important to remember that that goes for all the stuff that we're saying too. Like our, our, our advice in this podcast to a large extent is blanket advice because we're speaking to an unknown audience. Now, we, like, we have a little bit of an idea as to whom we're speaking to. But at the same time, we highly recommend, whether it's with us or somebody else, sit down, have a conversation with somebody who is a financial professional, help them understand your specific situation so that you can get advice that is targeted to you. As always, we hope this episode was valuable for you. And Mr. Collins. Cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities Guardian or Quantified Financial Partners, and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Ryan and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ333 North Indian Hill Boulevard, Claremont, California, 91711. Telephone 909-399-1100. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities member FINRA SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Ryan Burklow Air Insurance License number 15319412, CA Insurance License number 0K24924. Alexander Collins Air Insurance License Number 7264699, CA Insurance License Number 0H24806, Pinpoint Number 2021-123977, Expiration 07-2023.